0: Welcome to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about the prominence of the KKK in Denver in the 1920s.
1: It started out as a kind of secret fraternal society And then bit by bit, it
0: becomes out of the shadows, and we find them running for office. An artist from the Rocky Mountains teams up with the Texas musician.
2: So in the book, he's writing The Onion up into the sky.
0: And spoken word poetry in Aspen.
3: For your story to save me in every way a person can be saved, so speak, sing, write.
0: From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. In his new book, Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption and the Klan, Alan Prendergast writes about Denver District Attorney Philip Van Syce, who in the 1920s busted a crime ring that had been thriving in the city. Van Syce then turned his attention to an even greater threat, the Ku Klux Klan, which was in the process of taking over state government. Why was this somebody that you wanted to write about? Well, in part because he
1: wasn't well-known. I was rather baffled that he isn't better known. Um, I first came across the name when they were trying to decide what to name that that jail after, and uh, his name came up, and all I knew at that point was that he was a DA in the 1920s. But he had two really memorable battles going on then uh, against criminal elements in Denver, of which there were quite a few. And uh, the first battle is pretty well known, at least among historians, which is that he, took, he sort of cleaned up an organized crime group of confidence men that were fleecing rich tourists uh, in Denver and did this in a very interesting way. But the second battle is, is I think, the reason he isn't better known, and it has to do with him standing up to the Ku Klux Klan at a time when the Klan was in the process of taking over state government in Colorado. And that didn't win him a lot of friends at the time. But in retrospect, of course, looking back now, we can see that he was doing some remarkable things. And it made me really want to write more and find out more about who was this guy.
0: Well, what I found interesting was just your description of what was going on in Denver with all of these cons that we're having and these grifters as you write about them and it's called The Big Store. What was that name in, as it pertained to Denver and why was Denver and Colorado such a hub for organised crime and particularly this type of you know, con men, these grifters?
1: Yeah, this is something that if you've ever seen the movie The Sting you would have some idea what I'm talking about. It's really the, the long con where it's not the sort of thing you do on a street corner in a minute. It's a series of very talented confidence men all playing different parts, luring a mark into an investment that is going to basically disappear. And this takes place over a process of weeks or months, and it involves very large sums of money. Um, Denver was important for, for this kind of work because, number one, Every summer, there was a number of tourists coming to town. Denver back then was a real attraction, a new place to go for a lot of the bored wealthy in other parts of the country. In the summer, they would come to Denver and they would you know, go up to Red Rocks and go up to Pikes Peak and things like that. Um, but more important, Denver was a protected town. It was a fixed town. That's what the big store refers to, is, is a town where you can operate without worrying about the law because the police have been bribed. And Denver was incredibly corrupt at this time. That's the part that I think people don't realize when they go in the history is just how pervasive this sort of uh, corruption was and and how it affected the abilities con men
0: to operate. He cleans up Denver of these grifters essentially and then the Klan becomes yes. an issue and um, give us some context as to what was going on because the Klan was emerging nationally, or re-emerging, because it had emerged you know, before that, and then there was a little bit of a resurgence. What was going on nationally, and then why did Colorado become such, once again, a hotbed for Klan activity? Right.
1: Yeah. No, that's a great question. the uh, The interesting thing is the original Klan, the one we know about from movies and so on, was right after the Civil War, and this was a very violent terrorist group trying to stop Reconstruction, basically. Um, the one that came up in the 20s is a whole different animal, even though it has the same roots in white supremacy. It is essentially soft peddling that message and trying to do other things. It's interested. It's a political movement and really a, almost a populist movement trying to gain power. And it manifests itself in different ways. In Colorado, it started out as a kind of secret fraternal society. And then bit by bit, it becomes out of the shadows, and we find them running for office. I mean, and sometimes they're running openly as a Klan member, but a lot of times not. The mayor's race in 1923, Van Syce was—a lot of people wanted him to run for mayor. He declined— And this guy Stapleton ran instead and became mayor, and he denied being a Klansman, but if you go look in the Klan ledger books, which survived from those days, you'll see that he was already a Klan member at the time that he started running for office, and he started putting other Klan people in power. So Van Cys had just gotten rid of this other group of corrupt officials. And now suddenly he's got Klan policemen and a Klan manager of safety and a Klan judge. So to me, the two investigations are very closely related. And what the Klan was doing is a more sophisticated kind of con in a way than what he had seen with the grifters.
0: But what was actually the reality then for those communities that were being targeted by the Klan? Because we hear about Ward Gash. Yes. And he... This is where in your book, this is when we start hearing about the Klan. And back in 1922, he gets a letter from the Klan or a letter on KKK stationery, basically telling him, you know, get out of town or, or whatever or threatening him. Yes. And so the reality for people who were targeted by the Klan what was pretty significant to I me, mean, I know at that time there were a lot of immigrants, there was a lot of Latinos, we, you know, of course, African Americans. There was so much going on. What was the reality for people living well, in Denver?
1: It, it, it could be serious. I mean, there were there were a couple of beatings. There were there were, and then one I know of with a Jewish lawyer and one with a Catholic uh, Knights of Columbus activist. Um, and certainly Ward Gash did leave town briefly, but Van Sice was intent on getting him back and saying, you know, basically saying, you have a protection in our city. You know, this is not something we're going to tolerate. Um, but I think for everybody who was intimidated, by them, there there is there another aspect of people who refused to be intimidated. And and that was true with each of these communities. There were some pretty good stories. Um they burned a cross on the lawn of the head of the NAACP in Denver. His response was to start wearing a gun and to uh, arrange for the national NAACP convention to be in Denver in 1925 when the Klan was at the heat peak of its power, which I think was a very bold thing to do and say, and just sort of like daring them to try to discourage or scare these people away, which they couldn't do.
0: Were you right as well that on, I think on Friday nights caravans of clanners, clucklers, they drive through West Denver into neighborhoods harassing Catholics or Jews or whoever was well, living on the there. On Friday nights
1: it was the West Denver, West Denver because of the Jewish neighborhood on, and their Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know they, they were they were they were morons. They were trying to do all these things. I mean I don't think there's any question about that. But I I also think there were a lot of pockets of resistance to this. So I, I didn't want to overemphasize how scary or you know how terroristic this group was. It was not like it played out differently in other places. In, in Texas and in California, for example, the 1920s Klan was very violent and was prosecuted and was quickly a pariah organization. And in Colorado, they were much more interested in becoming the mainstream. And, and they worked hard at that. You, you see these photographs. Some of them are in my book. Of the women's auxiliary, you know, handing out charity. These are all these women in Klan robes uh, with baskets of food for, you know, the underprivileged. And so they they did good PR in Colorado and and tried to downplay the the violent nature of of what they're really talking about.
0: And what about neighboring states? Because you write about a clan group out of Wyoming, I think northern Colorado, Wyoming. There was a Grand Dragon who was over that region. Right. What about other parts of the Rocky Mountain West? Were they present there?
1: Yes, um, not as strongly as in Colorado, but surprisingly in the northwest, they were very strong. I mean, if you want to go as far west as like Portland, it was a huge clan town. Um, parts of western Colorado um, were, were really great, strong pockets of Clan support, Grand Junction. Um, Canyon City was a real bastion of Clan support. But it, it, it sort of varied from place to place. For example, I, I would have expected, knowing something about the history of it, that Colorado Springs would have been a popular Clan place. It wasn't. And part of that is because the city fathers were very sensitive to the tourism trade and they didn't want to scare anybody off. And so they made it very clear to the Clan that they weren't going to get much traction there, and they didn't. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of, you almost have to sort of vary it state by state, city by city about where they really found a home. And sometimes they modified the message just to be more, you know, make it fit better with who they were trying to appeal to.
0: You mentioned the rapid rise, but then the rapid decline of the Klan. And that came in in around 1926 or so. Right. There were a lot of other factors for that. It wasn't just Van Syce's no. legal. No,
1: and some of it was happening nationally, and a lot of it, as I say, was self-destruction. Um, there, there were exposés and scandals involving the corruption of the leaders. Uh, some of the leaders went to jail. Uh, there was embezzlement. There was schisms. And, and the Klan just sort of fell out of favor almost as rapidly as it had ar- arisen. It's really remarkable to
0: see how, how, how completely it collapsed. So what about the legacy, then, of the Klan?
1: Well, I think what's interesting is the Klan never completely goes away. Um, We've seen resurgences here and there. There Maybe the Black Klansman is about a Klan activity in Colorado Springs in the early 70s. Uh, There was certainly another Klan that was causing trouble in Denver in the early 90s. Um, These are much smaller and more fringe groups than the one in the 20s, though. Uh, so in some ways the legacy of the Klan is is the is their own erasure at some point because of their their internal problems as well as the people who stood up to them and, and Van Isaac was not the only one doing that clearly i mean there was there was resistance to the Klan from uh, the black community there was resistance in the jewish community and in, and among the catholics that all all of which is pretty notable in its own way um so i mean it, yeah, it they keeps coming back, but I, I don't think it's anything like this crazy mass movement we saw in the 20s.
0: Alan Prendergast has been our guest. His latest book is Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption and the Clan*. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been great. You can hear a longer interview with Alan Prendergast about his book Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption and the Clan* online at KGNU.org. That interview was excerpted from the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. You're listening to The Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. I'm Maeve Conran. In a unique collaboration with Roots in Southwestern Colorado, A local printmaker and Austin, Texas's beloved Shiny Ribs intertwine art and music to explore a cosmic query. Who built the moon? KSJD's Lacey McKay has more. The song Who
4: Built the Moon by Shiny Ribs is a mythical story of a lonely pilgrim who creates the moon from an onion to combat his isolation.
5: Once there was a pilgrim he was lonely as a broom. He had the idea
4: to build the moon. He Through his tears and toil, he forms a celestial body that influences tides and connects everyone under its watchful presence. And it
5: made him cry, then he covered it
4: up. The pilgrim's legacy is the shared wonder we all feel when looking at the moon, a symbol of collective solitude and curiosity. Here's Kevin Russell, the multi instrumentalist and singer songwriter who is the main creative force behind Shiny Ribs.
5: I knew I wanted to write a song, but um, I think in my mind too it was maybe I thought it might be a more of a kid's song, you know, but once once I played it and lived with it, I was like, This is just a good song. <laughs> with children's literature is, is a specific genre, but like with children's music I I've always subscribed to the fact that all music is children's music for the most part, you know, it's uh, it's all human music and children are humans.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the person behind the crafting of the new children's book based on the Shiny Ribs song is Katie Terrell Ramos, a local printmaker here in Southwestern Colorado who also acts as the owner and operator of Mesa Verde Lavender.
2: So, I was a music teacher, uh, and I was teaching at an elementary school and My husband got a job in Texas, and so it was either keep teaching in Colorado or go live with him, so I went with him for a summer, and he encouraged me to take my first art class ever, well, since like middle school, because I did music during high school and college, and I took an art class at the Southwest School of Art, I think is what it's called, and um, it was a block printing class, and so we were going to learn like screen printing, all these different things. And like one week into the class, my teacher had a rubber stamp in her art box and I stopped the class. I was like, whoa, 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 what are those? And she explained it. And I didn't learn anything else in the class. I just carved rubber the whole time. And that's how I became obsessed. Now I've carved probably over 5,000 stamps at this point. Katie
4: saw Shiny Ribs while in Lukanbach, Texas, and was encouraged by her father-in-law to check out the legendary Congo line that Kevin often conjures at the end of his shows, and she was instantly taken in by the performance.
2: We got into the Congo line and I was like, oh my goodness, this Mm -hmm. musician is magic. I published my first book, Igabedif the Musical Yak, and Mm -hmm. I sent it to him and I said you know, you're one of my favorite artists. I'm super inspired by you. It would mean the world to me if you sang the song from Mm -hmm. the book. And two weeks later, he sent me a video with him singing the song.
4: After some self-described fangirling, Katie decided to add Kevin to her next book of illustrations.
2: To thank him, I put him into my second book, Face Mm -hmm. the Musical Flamingo. And so he's illustrated in it. And that's kind of where we got started. We started a friendship there, and then once that book came out, he asked me about doing Who Built the Moon.
4: Kevin says that he originally wrote the song with kids in mind, but he saw the opportunity to put it into book form and was drawn to Katie's unique illustration style and ability to capture the nature of the song.
5: The aesthetic part of an illustrator is what I was after, so I didn't want just anybody doing it. I could, of course, hire somebody just to do it, um, they've got to understand and appreciate where you're coming from and what it means. So when I saw her artwork, I got to know her through the Igabadiff book, got to know her and really saw how productive and awesome she is. <laughs> I was like, she'd be the perfect person. I love her style. I like her, her mannerisms, you know, the way she represents characters, the way she thinks about her art. So, um, yeah, it was just a natural for me. and 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 I figured she would be into it because she was a fan and she she dug the song and everything. So it seemed like a natural fit. She's so thoughtful about the way she approaches her projects. Um, I should be so thoughtful. was lonely as who
2: built the moon is a little bit of Kevin's story. So Kevin, had a musical story that's just incredible it's been fun to watch him in the gourds and then he went to shiny ribs and I think he's just had this really cool path in his musical uh, journey and so I wanted to highlight his story so in the book he's riding the onion up into the sky and the lyric is he cut the ropes and it came unwound and he raised it up up off of the ground. one to illustrate because I couldn't wrap my mind around an onion going up into the sky so I played around with just kind of the idea that the onion might be like a hot air balloon sort of thing you know it all of a sudden has magical powers and that illustration has definitely become one that I'm really excited about that and the moon at the end with the conga line Mm -hmm.
4: They recently launched a Kickstarter for the book that was featured on the website's front page and exceeded its goal in just a few days.
2: Yeah, so Kevin and I kind of went through a journey of figuring out how we wanted to publish the book. And um, I asked him if I could do it as a Kickstarter because I've always wanted to launch a book with a Kickstarter and I've never done it before. And he he gave me the green light. And so I built a campaign. I got to design a bunch of different um, swag that goes with it and some T-shirts, some tote bags like all Mm -hmm. sorts of really cool stuff but what it helps us do is order a ton of hardcover copies of the book and then we can send a bunch of them out they already have homes because Mm -hmm. people pledge to get a book in the kickstarter but then also we can have books to give to bookstores and places. when he goes on tour he'll have Mm -hmm. them and it's all for that Our goal was Mm 6,000, and last time I checked, we were at 25,000. There are over 100 hand-carved rubber stamps in it, and so it's been a labor of love and, and a project that I've dreamed about doing for years now. I've learned that a lot in this process of we're all just artists. We're all people that are on a path, and we all want to create beautiful things, and we all want to follow our passion, and it's been really inspiring to have a seasoned artist who is willing to just encourage me to follow my dreams and so I feel really excited to keep doing this and illustrate more songs into books. That's my goal.
4: You can find more information about the project by searching for Who Built the Moon on Kickstarter or by following Katie Ramos or Shiny Ribs on Instagram.
0: Thanks to Lacey McKay at KSJD in Cortez for that report. We round out today's show with some spoken word poetry, recently recorded by Aspen Public Radio at the Arts Campus at Willits in Basalt. We'll hear now from Joaquin Z. Wataneo, a World Poetry Slam champion and Poet Laureate of Dallas, Texas.
3: This is for the kid, this young brown student in Basalt. Who asked me yesterday, can I be a sunflower in my metaphor? (laughs) I really wanted to read something for him tonight. So this is called an open letter to young Chicano students who dream of writing and maybe to myself at age 16 after Stephen Graham Jones. One, write. Just write. Be it poem or prose, true or false, get it out of you and onto the page. I firmly believe we would have more brown readers if we had more brown writers. You have a responsibility here, as do I. Not to ourselves, but to that skinny 13-year-old Mocoso from the barrio or from the fields who has read 27 books from beginning to end in their short life and never truly loved one of them because they have yet to read a story that sounds like theirs too. For every white writer a teacher assigns you to read, find a Latinx, a Latin X, a brown writer to read as well. You can read their work in translation in English if you prefer, or in Spanish, if you're more comfortable con la lengua de nuestras madres, don't let anyone tell you the numbers will never add up. I'll get you started with a short list here: Mistral, Reyes, Borges, Neruda, Cortezar, Castellanos, Paz, Alegría, Arenas, Anaya, vaca cisneros etc., etc., etc. These are merely a few among the multitude. Three. If the word you want to use is frijoles, and not beans, use that word. If the word you wish to employ is loaf and not tortilla, employ that word. Make no apologies for writing poems and stories entirely in Spanish. Don't let them tell you there's no market for this. Don't let them tell you what is readable and what is not. They don't know you, and they don't know your readers the way that you will come to know them. Make no apologies for writing in occasional Spanish to Latinos who see it as just another kind of assimilation. They don't know your people, your gente, how you spoke, how the bad boys of the barrio of your youth spoke, Speak in your true voice, be it English, Spanish, Or los dos. Four. You don't have to go to far-off galaxies in your mind's eye for an ideal for a poem or a story. Start in your grandmother's kitchen. El jardín de su abuelo. Listen to lovers quarrel at the taquería. Watch closely as the tortillas bubble and blacken on the comal. Feel your tío's hands as he returns from the fields. There are poems and stories all around you just waiting to be found. Sometimes you don't even have to look for them. We are a loud people. We argue loudly. We love loudly. We live loudly. sit in the middle of all that noise and silence yourself. The poem will find you. I remember a conversation I had once with my Tio Celestino, the biggest and strongest of all of my uncles. He asked me when I was likely no more than nine years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? Poet, I answered. I had no idea where that answer came from, but I knew that I meant it. Months later, my Tio said to me, so you still want to be a writer, huh? Questions asked in declarative statements, a trait common of all, in all my uncles. Uh-huh, I replied sheepishly. And then he said, Mio, you must know that when they see you, When they read your last name, they will see you as Mexican first and American second. What does that mean? I asked. It means you'll have to work harder, read more, write more, work smarter than they do. What if I can't? What do I do? I questioned. I say to you all now what he said to me then, mijo. You can write and be better than all of them. You just have to keep your mind and your knife sharper than theirs. Six. Many of us are Catholics, are atheists, are recovering Catholics, are recovering atheists, but we all have faith, even if it's simply in the sacred that resides in us. But the weight of that faith, the weight of our youth, combined with the color of our skin, means we are steeped in sacrifice and guilt. We are practiced at both. If it hurts to write it, if it hurts to read it aloud, if it hurts you to place it on the page, you must know that you have the right to write it. Don't worry about saying you're sorry. Don't worry about asking for permission. The writer is neither sinner nor saint. You are something in between the two. Most of us are. I want you to write your poems and stories the way I want you to live your lives, with reckless abandon, with a curse word for the world stuck in your throat for the tyrants that exist there, unafraid of the consequences, apologetic to nothing, and no one, seven. In many stories they, and in some instances we, assign our characters to the role of curandera, or farmer, or construction worker, or nanny. And yes, we are those things. Those things are honest and good and worthy of being written about. They should be written about. But I challenge you to remember that we are also poets, and teachers, and doctors, and senators, and dreamers, and song singers. We must, when we create our characters, remember who we come from, who we are, and who we are destined to be. Eight, when writing a story or a poem, you must know that sometimes the word you want to say does not exist in English. In those moments, I implore you to follow back in the lengua de sus abuelos, a little white cross beside the road to mark a spot where someone has tragically died is 16 English words trying to say one thing, one undeniably tragic and poetic thing, but even with all those words, it still falls, falls short. Pero la palabra en español, descanso, yes, that says it all perfectly, nine, and I promise you I'm almost done, audience, trust your voice. It took me a lifetime to learn that. Don't let it take you as long. Know that the world is ready for your voice. Your time is now. We are listening, I am listening. I'm listening to every single one of you. I'm grown weary of my own voice. I wanna hear yours. Like you, I hope that my writing changes someone, heals them, charges them to act, but I'm too close to my own writing for it to have that effect on me. I'm waiting for your poem, for your story to save me in every way a person can be saved. So speak, sing, write. Become a sunflower if you must. Press the pencil down hard when you do. Trust me when I say you will leave an impression on things you are not intending to impress. 10, an astonishing American poet once said, if you do not use language, you are used by it. You young brown writers come from two languages. Someone once even said you were born with two tongues. I challenge you to realize and capture the beauty of that duality in your poetry and stories. We are. All of us are mestizos, born of mixed blood. We are the Spanish conquer and the dark-skinned indial, untrusting of those white sails and faces in the distance offshore. There's always been someone trying to silence us, trying to pit one half of ourselves against the other, trying to force us to be this or that. You must know that when you breathe, when you live, when you write, when you dream, when you die, you have been everything all along. You and I are children of conquest. But if we soul search, we can find the poem that forgives the Incan, Mayan, or Aztec for existing in us as stars exist to the child, you know, beautiful but distant. And if we dig deeply enough, we can also create the poem that forgives the conqueror for being blind to the beauty for creating that distance. This is the story of us. This is the poem that lives in each and every one of us. If you don't write it, who will? And lastly, I want you to know, your beautiful brown poems and stories are significant and necessary and sacred in every sense of the word and because of that undeniable fact always remember always know that no man can build his wall around your voice thank you
0: that was joaquin siwat performing at the arts campus at willits as part of the aspen words series and to hear more from joaquin and from other poets go to aspenpublicradio.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to KGNU, KSJD and Aspen Public Radio for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.